Thank you for listening to the podcasts of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. If you've been helped by these podcasts, we encourage you to help us conclude 2022 in a strong financial position. Please make a generous donation to Grace Anglican. You can find out how to do so on our website at graceanglicanonline.com and simply click the giving tab. Thank you so much for considering it. So we're very near Christmas, a day upon which we celebrate the birth of an infant. I suppose if you didn't believe in God, or you didn't believe more specifically in Christ, and you were here for the first time hearing all of these lessons and knowing something about the Christmas traditions that surround the birth of this child, you might think it's really odd that we're all gathering together to celebrate and sing to a baby. We sing about a baby, we light candles on Christmas Eve to remind us of the light of this baby, and then we uh, have a lot of nostalgia and traditions that celebrate the life of this um, child. That is a remarkable thing because, as, as you may know, and I, I don't have any medical background, but I understand that babies are like born every day. Like the, It's not really uncommon to have children, even very special children. And yet this is the only child whose birth we commemorate every single year. Again, we don't sing about other very famous babies. We don't do that, right? There's no O Little Town of Beyonce. There's no joy to the world, Elon Musk has come, though some are tempted to sing that. So why do we celebrate this particular infant born into ancient Mediterranean squalor? We're celebrating an infant who grew up uh, into a man who didn't write a poem. He never wrote a book. He didn't invent anything. Why do we gather? Why do we sing? Why do we light candles? Why do we have nostalgia? Well, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to the church in Rome. Uh, and it's a profound letter, especially if you realize who Paul was originally. Because in this letter, Paul says grand things about Jesus right from the start, but Paul in his earlier life absolutely hated Jesus, saw him as a a liar, a corrupter of the youth, right, a mishandler of truth, that Jesus was the ultimate heretic who deserved to die. But then later in Paul's life, he got mugged by reality because he had a vision of Jesus, right? The risen Jesus appears to him and calls him into his service. And that same man who had this radical change of perception is writing this letter to the very churches who are in the capital of the empire. And he offers us, in the very introduction of that letter, a chest x-ray of Jesus Christ. He shows us who Jesus really was and is and will always be. Because according to Paul, Christ was a child of this world and a child of of the next world, that he was born according to the flesh, and he was born according to the Spirit. He was the son of David, and he was the son of God, that Jesus was in himself a man of two natures, one human, one heavenly. So I want to talk about Jesus as the son of David and the son of God uh, from uh, chapter 1, of Paul's epistle to the Romans, specifically verses 3 and 4. That's all I'm talking about tonight because there's enough in it to consider. So let's talk about Jesus as son of David just for a minute. Now this is verse 3, partway through verse 3, so please follow along with me in this little introduction that Paul writes to the churches in Rome. So in verse 3, 
Paul describes Jesus as one, here to quote him, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Descended from David according to the flesh. Two things to note there. The first is his descent, that he was a relative of uh, a very famous Israelite named David. Now, David was a shepherd who became a a king, and uh, out of him grew a great dynasty. Uh, And David, uh, in being king, was technically, according to the Bible, a Messiah. Now, the word Messiah was sometimes used flexibly in the Old Testament. Messiah simply means anointed one, somebody who was slathered with oil and set aside for sacred purposes. And David was anointed with oil, set aside, christened, if you will, Messiahed by a very famous prophet to rule God's people. And the Old Testament is filled with prophecies about the Davidic line of kings that, in fact, it was so optimistic, it was so optimistic that there was this covenant made with David and his household, and it's in 2 Samuel 7, if you ever want to check it out, and the covenant says this, that a king would sit on David's seat or his throne and rule forever. It isn't, it isn't just an optimistic prophecy, right? Your family is going to reign for 300 years, so it'll be a good, you'll have a good run. It's saying that this throne, this kingdom of David, and the authority implicit on that throne will last forever. Uh, and forever, as you know, is technically a very long time. Um, and so it's an optimistic, very beyond optimistic prophecy. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. King David, along with all of King David's family and King David's descendants were, well, to put it curtly, rather rotten. Uh, Things didn't turn out too well because, yes, David was the apple of God's own eye and a man after God's own heart, but, yeah, he had a lot of people knocked off along the way, right? Uh, He uh, committed adultery. He uh, takes the husband of the woman with whom he committed adultery and has him killed. If you ever want to read a harrowing story, read about the death of King David. You know, when some grand figures in Scripture perish, like Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. David, on the other hand, said, here's a big long list of all my political enemies. Have them all killed. The end. Um, So David is a complex figure. His sons-to-be are even more complicated. Uh, And so there was this Old Testament idea that grew out of the dissatisfaction that the prophets had with the monarchy, and this was the big idea in the Old Testament that there would be a son of David to come, a much better David since the original article wasn't so great. We have to expect one who is to come, who is our perfect king, our perfect ruler, who would take David's place and in fact sit on that throne and rule forever. Now, when Jesus started doing all sorts of messianic activities like healing people, teaching truth, raising the dead, people started to ascribe to him that very title. They looked at him and they saw royalty. They saw forever in him. And they said, you are the son of David. Even blind people on the street would cry out, son of David, have mercy on me, right? And on Palm Sunday, when they're all waving their their leafy branches as Jesus enters the city in triumph, many people cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. They saw him as the fulfillment of that ancient optimism, that here comes our King. 
uh, to do what we had originally hoped David would do, but now the son of David has arrived. And so, right from the start, St. Paul is saying, here's who Jesus is. He is a man with royal blood, and that royal blood goes back to David himself. So, he is the fulfillment of that ancient optimistic prophecy. But more than that, he says, descended from David according to the flesh. The flesh. Meaning, this is a man with a family history, with um, heredity, with a genealogy. Uh, It's really fascinating. My father, who is a wonderful man, has invented and really fabricated a whole family history for us that never existed. Um, He says, you know, Ethan, all of our relatives came from Scandinavia, which is blatantly untrue. They all came from England, but he doesn't like that because I think he thinks he's a Viking. So um, he's really into Viking programs. So I'm like, let let me purchase for you some sort of uh, program on Ancestry.com, and he said, that won't be necessary this year. He doesn't want to know the truth, right? Um, But what's fascinating about the gospel narratives, and we might think this part of the story or this part of the scripture is boring or or needless, but they give us genealogies. Matthew's version of Jesus's initial days, as well as Luke's, give us genealogies that go way back in time and that detail and chronicle how Jesus was related to many fancy and not-so-fancy Old Testament figures, including King David. And I think the reason that the word flesh is used here is to remind us that uh, Jesus, was in fact a human with a human family related to fallible human princes according to the flesh. And I think it's important that we remember that even the word incarnation means to put on flesh. Uh, And and so we have a descendant from David according to the flesh. So if you want to know who the Messiah is, you have to think about Jewish royalty and you have to think about a real person. Now, here's why that's important, because it's an incredibly discomforting idea to a lot of people, to have a Messiah that is, in fact, that human. Uh, in, In Judaism, even to this day, they really appreciate the transcendence of God and the fact that God is in His heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few, that there is not a blur between heaven and earth. They appreciate that distinction, and so the fact that you would bring those worlds together God and materiality is discomforting uh, to many of our Jewish friends. Um, Certainly in in Islam, they're uncomfortable with even the fact of a godly Jesus um, entering the full experience of being human. That's why many of our friends in the Islamic community believe that Jesus on the cross switches places miraculously with Judas Iscariot. Judas gets crucified and gets what he deserves. But Jesus goes free, being a godly person, because a godly person wouldn't experience uh, the fullness of human frailty and annihilation. It may interest you to know that the initial heresy uh, that is wrong teaching that arose in the first century about Jesus was not that Jesus was just a man. The original heresy was that Jesus was only God and appeared to be a man. In other words, they were so impressed with this Nazarene that they thought he couldn't, he mustn't, he wasn't certainly human. He just appeared to be. Um, And we see this even in modern film. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the Zeffirelli film, which is on every Easter and is about 27 hours long. Um, But it's it's an interesting take on a very British Jesus. But the British Jesus in the film, and he was, this was part of the direction of the auteur, was never blink. Jesus never, ever blinks the whole time. So he can stare right into your eyes. 
right? He, he, the idea was to connotate that he was, uh, he was a little more than human, almost like he was a floating figure. But whatever the New Testament teaches, it certainly teaches this, that Jesus was like us in every way, yet without sin. Like us in every way, meaning he was born into a family. That family had jobs. That family had problems. He worked for paychecks. He had siblings and parents who, had, who sometimes misunderstood him. He no doubt had infections. He drank good wine and ate bad food. He studied hard. He was both loved and unloved. He developed wrinkles uh, with aging, and he honed his ideas over time. Uh, he was just like you and just like me. That's the Jesus that we worship tonight. Um, Robert Capon, uh, the uh, now deceased Episcopal the canon theologian of the Diocese of New York, said this, whatever else the mystery of Christ may be, it is something hidden in this world, in the physical universe. It is not some mystical truth parked away uh, in some other realm of a spiritual reality. No, as Jesus comes into our world, he does so as the descendant of David according to the flesh. Yeah, so that's point one. Here's point two, that Jesus is also the Son of God. The Son of God. This is verse four. Paul continues to write, and he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now, there's a universe of meaning there, but let's just parse it a bit. So, he calls him the Son of God, the Son of God. Yes, he was the Son of David, but he's more than the Son of David. He's the Son of God. That, and he's using familial language here. And if Jesus is the Son, that implies he has a Father, and that Father is, in fact, God. Then that Jesus, as the Son and his Father, share the same DNA. Uh, this passage, among a myriad of others in the New Testament, are why the uh, creeds that we confess tonight and other nights say that Jesus is God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made. Now, I want you to think about this. This is from St. Paul, who in the first century was a very learned Jew who studied under a very famous rabbi named Gamaliel. He was a true son of his church at the time. Uh, he believed in Judaism fully, and yet he was completely convinced of the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was not just a shaman. He wasn't just an avatar. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a priest. He was something grander than all of those things, that he was God with us. So he calls him the Son of God. And then he says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit, the Spirit, or the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit. Now, again, he's underscoring Jesus' origin in God, because remember, the Holy Spirit in Scripture is the vivifying uh, person and presence of the Almighty. The Spirit is there at the opening uh, moments of creation, hovering over the waters. Uh, the Spirit is there in the vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones, uh, in, in which uh, the, the, this valley was animated and brought to life by the giving of the Spirit. The Spirit descends upon Jesus as he's being baptized so that Jesus will be empowered for his ministry. The Spirit is there to bring life. And here we have the Spirit active in the ministry of the Son of God. That's why we say in the Creed that, he, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. It shows God's immediate involvement. None of you were conceived by the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus was, which underscores his uniqueness as the Son of God. 
Lastly, it says that Jesus was declared to be or publicly announced to be the Son of God according to the Spirit by his resurrection from the dead. Now, it's not Easter yet, so we'll get there, but it's important to point this out, that Jesus was declared to be publicly the Son of God, not just by his birth, but ultimately by his resurrection because he was born with a destiny in hand. Don't you wish you would know your destiny? You could plan better, right, if you really knew what God's will was for your life and all of the details. Jesus did know what his mission was, which was to die and to rise again for all of us. Uh, And so he was declared to be the Son of God in that moment, that it was made very public in that moment because it was at that moment, at the resurrection, when Jesus' immortality, his very God nature as an immortal being, was shown to the world as he conquers death itself. And so Jesus overcomes the most unifying human experience, death. Jesus, the Son of God, triumphs over it and therefore is declared to be God's royal Son. So, This doctrine, like Jesus as the son of David, also is full of discomfort, makes us twitch a little, because Jesus as the son of God means by implication that he has no other rivals. No one in all of sacred scripture uh, is understood to be the son of God as Jesus was the son of God. Uh, um, Moses was not the son of God. Elijah was not the son of God. Solomon was not the son of God in the way that Jesus was the son of God. They were children of God. They could be sons in a lesser sense, but not this kind of son of God. Uh, This kind of son of God puts Jesus in a a very special place um, without rivals or peers or competitors. And here's why that's hard. It means that he has universal reach into every corner of life. And that's rather discomforting. Lots of people want to reduce Jesus in his son of Godness. They want to reduce Jesus to be the supreme standard of ethics or a social reformer or a religious genius or an exemplary martyr. But Scripture doesn't give us that option if we take it seriously. Instead, it calls Jesus the son of God. And so my question is, can we handle Jesus as the unique only son of the Father, having the DNA of eternity? Can we handle God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made? Can we handle that Jesus? And I don't think we should answer too quickly because the implications of having a Jesus like that are nearly endless. It will certainly make life harder for us if we believe that Jesus is God's definitive revelation, God's own Son. You know, it's quite something that that Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Rome because they were close to the center of power in that world, right? And the center of power was a man named Caesar who himself already adopted a title, Caesar, both Lord and God. He struggled with humility uh, terribly, but he already had that title. And here St. Paul is saying, no, there's a, there's a real son of God that has come into the world, a real son of David who is the world's true Lord. Uh, and that claim... That claim, friends, immediately threatens all other persons or systems that demand to be ultimate. And many of the persons in our lives and the systems in our lives demand to be ultimate. They want to be your everything. And if Jesus is the Son of God, that topples some thrones. Malcolm Geit, the English poet and Anglican priest, wrote this, Every Herod dies and comes alone to stand before the Lamb upon the throne.
Uh, that's what happens when you have a son of God. It, by default, all other things are found wanting. And so St. Paul, as he begins his letter to the churches in Rome, wants to reveal the identity of Jesus. On the one hand, he is the human descendant of King David according to the flesh. On the other hand, he is in fact the eternal Son of God. And they're both brought together, two natures in one man. Eternity wedded to materiality, a bridge, if you will. St. Paul calls him this a mediator between heaven and earth. Karl Barth calls him the God-man, the God-man who brings us back to the Father. That's who Jesus is. To put it very plainly, Jesus is the God-man, completely unique in his person and in his effect. I'm going to say two brief words uh, of application, and then I'm done. One about dignity and one about demand. First, dignity. When God conjoins himself to our world, notice that he does not embody himself in constellations, in the sea, in the impressive landscapes that we have all around us, not here, but in other places, <laughs> impressive landscapes. Instead, he unveils himself, discloses his only beloved son in his most dignified creatures. Remember what we were first called when this whole thing began that we were made in the image and likeness of God. And so, that should give us a sense, I believe, of our worth, that God saw that our image was worth embodying and, more than that, worth saving. And so, He became one of us. Or to quote John Donne, the English poet and priest, "'Twas much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man much more." So consider the dignity that is connotated in the incarnation of God among us, but also the demand. Christmas demands a response to a question. Who was he? In fact, Jesus asked this question mid-course in his ministry to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? He wanted to know what they thought. Peter answered boldly, in fact, used the same words, similar words that Paul used in this passage. You are God's own son. And so it, Christmas sort of demands a response. Either we reduce Jesus and make him tame and palatable, or we allow Jesus to be Jesus. We declare, yes, he's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. Yes, he was a martyr, but he's more than a martyr. Yes, he was an example, but he's more than an example. He is a child of universal consequence. That is what Christmas is about, the scandal of particularity. So at Christmas, we celebrate, friends, a unique life, a unique child. It's why we gather to praise and adore him, because he is everything that we are, and more importantly, everything that we are not, all for our everlasting benefit. He is the unique and only bridge that unites heaven and earth and unites sinners with God. And he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Oh, yeah.